In the spring of 1913, Jack O'Connor, the former St. Louis Browns manager, tried to clear his name of scandal. He was accused of fixing a baseball game three years earlier to help fan favorite Nap Lajoie win the Chalmers Award. The Browns' ownership had fired him after the season, not only for poor management, but over suspicions that he'd cheated to help Knapp win. But O'Connor maintained his innocence. He ignited a public debate and sued the Browns for wrongful termination. The trial was a veritable who's who of baseball, involving everyone from the Browns' third baseman to the president of the American League, Ban Johnson. Both O'Connor and Johnson passionately defended themselves on the stand. Accusations of cheating, corruption, and double-dealing flew wildly. To those implicated, the case wasn't just a courtroom skirmish between O'Connor and the Browns over his contract. The reputation of America's pastime was at stake. It was a fight for the soul of baseball. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on the Chalmers Award, a baseball promotion in 1910 that promised a brand new Chalmers automobile to the winner of that year's batting title. But what began as a friendly competition devolved into a full-blown scandal. Last week, we covered the tight title race between young hotshot Ty Cobb and veteran favorite Nap Lajoie and its controversial climax. This week, we'll explore the fallout of the competition and how debate over the race continued for decades. We've got more on the Chalmers Award coming up. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On October 9th, 1910, baseball's regular season came to a close. In a week, the top teams in each league, the Philadelphia Athletics and the Chicago Cubs, were set to meet in the World Series. But the attention of fans, players, and the media wasn't on the upcoming championship. It was on beloved veteran Nap Lajoie of the Cleveland Naps and young, hot-headed phenom Ty Cobb of the Detroit Tigers. The two superstars of the sport had been engaged in a closely watched batting title race all season for the Chalmers Award. Though public opinion had swayed against Cobb, he had been leading the competition until the final two games of the year. The stakes were high. It was about more than simply bragging rights. Whomever the league determined had the highest batting average would win a brand new Chalmers 30 luxury car. No small reward. 
When the season came to a close, automobile magnate Hugh Chalmers prepared to award the vehicle to the winning player. There was just one problem. No one knew who really won the prize. The statistics were still being counted and had yet to be reported by the league. Making things more complicated, there were allegations that the St. Louis Browns had conspired to help Lajaway collect eight hits in the final games of the season. Many fans who witnessed the hits in question were suspicious. Seven were bunts that the third baseman didn't field in time, and one was a fly ball that the center fielder didn't hustle for. To many reporters, it seemed beyond comprehension that a player could get away with bunting seven times across two games and get on base each time. Sports writers, league officials, and Hugh Chalmers all knew something strange had happened. At first, Chalmers contacted the American League president, Ban Johnson, and offered him a way out of the scandal. He would simply give both Ty Cobb and Nap Lajaway a car. That way, it wouldn't matter who ended up ahead. The entire controversy could blow over. But Ban Johnson refused to ignore the scandal. He didn't want the easy way out. Someone had made a mockery of the American League, and he needed to find out who. He had a personal vendetta. The day after the season ended, Johnson announced that there would be an investigation into the batting title race. He was determined to put an end to the incident before the World Series began. He wanted every fan's mind to be on the upcoming series, not the distracting batting title. Over the next several days, American League employees worked overtime to calculate statistics for each hitter and determine who actually had the highest batting average. While they labored, Johnson tried to figure out if the winner had done it legitimately. It wasn't hard to find a scapegoat. Everyone who suspected foul play pointed their fingers at the same culprit, Jack O'Connor, the first-year manager of the St. Louis Browns. The actions of the entire Browns team seemed coordinated to give Lajoie as many hits as possible. The center fielder had been lazy, and the third baseman had repeatedly played too far back no matter how many times Lajoie bunted. The only person who could have organized such an effort was O'Connor. Johnson called Jack O'Connor into his office, but the Browns manager never showed. Furious, Johnson threatened to ban O'Connor from baseball if he didn't appear within 24 hours. Meanwhile, Ty Cobb and Nap Lajoie did their best to fly under the radar. For the most part, they kept quiet, but the press was clamoring and refused to accept total silence. Lajoie defended himself whenever directly asked, telling the Cincinnati press, Every hit I made in the doubleheader played in St. Louis Sunday was made on the square. For his part, Ty Cobb refused to take sides. In a brief interview on October 11, 1910, Cobb told a reporter, I am not prepared to make any charges against either Lajoie or members of the St. Louis team. The media was less diplomatic. Some directly attacked the Cleveland Naps, the St. Louis Browns, or Lajoie himself. They believed he had been complicit in allowing his friends to cheat the game so he could win the title. He was as dirty as the rest of them. Fans waded into battle as well. Clevelanders, seeking to defend Lajoie's honor, pointed out that Ty Cobb had benefited from preferential scoring in his hometown of Detroit. 
Tiger fans fired back with their own accusations, claiming that official scorers in Cleveland gave Lajue extra hits all season. There was anger and distrust on all sides. The only happy party was Hugh Chalmers. The controversy kept his name and his automobile in the papers and the public eye. But even he couldn't foresee just how big the scandal would grow. It raged like a wildfire through the sports world. A few days after the doubleheader, the official scorer, Victor Parrish, released a statement. He defended his most controversial decision as scorer, giving Lajoie a sacrifice instead of a hit. In one plate appearance, Lajoie laid down a bunt that was bobbled by the third baseman, allowing him to reach first. Because there was a man on first who advanced to second, Parrish decided to score the play a sacrifice bunt attempt and error rather than a hit. In his statement, Parrish revealed that there were two separate attempts by the St. Louis Browns to have the sacrifice turned into a hit. One came from a scout who argued that Lajoie would have gotten on base even if the baseman hadn't fumbled the ball. The other attempt came via a note delivered by a bat boy the mysterious paper promised a $40 bribe if the scorer changed his decision. Parrish also included another juicy anecdote in his statement. After the final game, he said he received a late-night phone call from a person who claimed to be Nap Lajoie himself. On the phone, Lajoie, or an imposter, argued that he deserved nine hits on that final day. When Parrish refused to change his ruling, the man hung up. Sports writers exploded in anger at the allegations. Some suggested that Lajoie had sent the anonymous note to Parrish during the game, attempting to bribe his way into victory. Most, however, continued to believe that St. Louis Browns manager Jack O'Connor was responsible for the note and for the collusion. On Saturday, October 15th, Jack O'Connor finally arrived at Ban Johnson's office in Chicago to answer for the accusations. Johnson urgently wanted to finish the troublesome investigation that day, before the World Series began two days later. Johnson and O'Connor met for two hours behind closed doors. Afterwards, Johnson met with Hugh Chalmers and finally his secretary. When the day came to a close, Johnson told reporters the investigation was concluded. The findings weren't what anyone expected. Johnson determined that there'd been no foul play. Lajoie's hits were legitimate, but Ty Cobb had won the batting title anyway. Johnson explained that Ty Cobb finished the season with 196 hits in 509 at-bats for a final batting average of .384944. Nap Lajoie finished with 227 hits in 591 at-bats for a final average of .384084. Cobb had won by the slimmest of margins, and Johnson announced that Lajoie should be awarded a car as well for being so close. The decision was good enough for Ty Cobb and Nap Lajoie. They both told reporters that they were satisfied with Ban Johnson's statement and his conclusions. Though Lajoie privately believed that he deserved to be named the winner, he hid his anger and tried to move on. He would soon have another season to focus on. There was, however, one loose end remaining. Johnson demanded that the St. Louis Browns investigate the allegations that someone had attempted to bribe the official scorer. 
The statement mollified some fans, but many sports writers remained unsatisfied. They believed that Johnson was trying to sweep the issue under the rug and rush through a surface-level inquiry. His call for the Browns to investigate themselves was seen as a way for him to pass the buck along and avoid further embarrassment. The truth was that Ban Johnson had privately urged the Browns' owner to fire both O'Connor and Harry Howell, a scout who had initially lobbied for an extra hit. Johnson was convinced that one of them had tried to bribe Victor Parrish, but didn't want the public to question the sport's integrity. He privately told the Browns' owner, Bob Hedges, that neither O'Connor nor Howell could stay in their positions. Hedges agreed. The next day, the St. Louis Browns announced that they were firing manager Jack O'Connor as well as scout Henry Howell. The Browns claimed the firings had nothing to do with the Chalmers Award scandal. With that, it seemed that the scandal had been cleanly wrapped up. When the World Series began on October 17th, baseball officials and players hoped they could put all of this behind them. But not everyone was so eager to move on. Jack O'Connor had lost his job, and he wasn't about to let it go. He insisted that he hadn't cheated. He wanted to prove his innocence by any means necessary, even if that meant going to war with the leadership of baseball. Coming up, the fallout from the Chalmers Award controversy becomes more complicated and more personal. Now back to the story. The 1910 World Series between the Philadelphia Athletics and the Chicago Cubs began on October 17, 1910, at Scheib Park in Philadelphia. Officials hoped that the games would serve as a welcome distraction from the Chalmers Award scandal. But it couldn't go completely without mention. Before the second game of the series, the organizers had to honor the winner of the batting title. Ty Cobb took the field and watched as his prize, a brand new Chalmers 30 automobile, was driven onto the green and presented to him. There was a second car alongside it for Nap Lajouet, but Lajouet wasn't in attendance. He had declined to make the trip to Philadelphia. Perhaps he didn't want to watch Ty Cobb take a victory lap. Cobb giddily posed for photos with his new car. When the pageantry was finished, he hopped into the driver's seat and sped off in his Chalmers 30 to the shouts of cheering fans. With that, the most visible aspects of the Chalmers Awards saga were resolved. But Ban Johnson, president of the American League, still had work to do. He'd prevented the incident from embarrassing his organization, but the misadventure had highlighted serious issues with the sport as a whole. There were clearly inconsistencies in officiating, home field biases in scoring, and discrepancies in official statistics. Johnson needed to reform the league's policies so that a controversy like this wouldn't happen again. The first place to start seemed to be with the official scorers. They were employed by the home teams, which gave them a clear conflict of interest. In response to the calls for reform, Johnson announced that official scores would need to be vetted and approved by his office in the future. This way, they could work to minimize their bias and hold the scores accountable when necessary. Then there was the issue of the award itself. The publicity had been huge for Hugh Chalmers' brand. He was eager to do it all again. But baseball leadership didn't share his enthusiasm. They were afraid to spark more controversy. 
Team owners also disliked the fact that the tight batting title race had distracted attention from the pennant race and the World Series. To them, baseball should be about healthy competition, not a flashy prize. Chalmers faced an uphill battle to get his car back in the sport's good graces. So instead of basing the award on a complex and easily manipulated statistic like batting average, he presented a few alternatives. He proposed that they give the award to the player who scored the most runs the next season or stole the most bases. He was open to whatever the National Commission wanted. By the time the 1911 season began, he'd worked out a deal to keep the Chalmers Award going. The new rules stated that an automobile would be awarded to the most valuable player in each league. The player would be chosen by a panel of baseball writers from each major league city, dubbed the Chalmers Trophy Commission. It was a complicated solution, but one that avoided the issues of the 1910 award. The vague criteria and voting system would prevent anyone from being able to game the system like the St. Louis Browns did. It also meant sports writers would be far less likely to attack the league over the award since they would be the ones choosing the winner. And because the award panel consisted of writers from all over the country, it would hopefully prevent hometown bias from affecting the result. Officials hoped that this final compromise would bring things back to normal for the 1911 season. But not everyone was willing to forgive and forget. Ty Cobb's relationships with his teammates remained strained. During the offseason, eight of Cobb's teammates had sent a telegram to Nap Lajue, congratulating him on winning the batting title. The intention was purely to annoy Cobb, and he knew it. In an interview conducted soon after, Cobb suggested that when he drove past those eight teammates, he'd honk at them from the front seat of his new Chalmers 30. The passive-aggressive tension continued to escalate. Cobb was not on speaking terms with at least one teammate who believed Cobb acted selfishly in the previous season. Ironically, the team continued to perform well as a whole, but the stress wasn't good for Cobb's already combative temperament. He wasn't entirely devoid of allies, however. Unlike his relationship with his teammates, Cobb remained on good terms with Lajoie. When they ran into each other on a train in April 1911, the two chatted politely about the batting title race. There seemed to be no bad blood between the two competitors. Which made Jack O'Connor, the disgraced manager of the St. Louis Browns, the only one still left with a problem. He couldn't find another job, as a manager or otherwise. After a career in baseball, not only was he suddenly out of a job, but he was blacklisted from the league. He desperately wanted to return to the Browns, but the team's owner, Bob Hedges, was being pressured by Ban Johnson to sell the team. O'Connor, who felt betrayed by Hedges, talked with the prospect of new ownership. Both sides were interested in O'Connor's return to the club. Unfortunately, the deal fell through. The new ownership group dropped out of negotiations and Bob Hedges remained in control of St. Louis. As the 1911 season went into the summer, O'Connor became aggravated. He knew he had to do something major to reclaim his spot in the game. He had to go public to clear his name. He boldly decided to sue his former team. It took until May of 1913 for Jack O'Connor's lawsuit to reach trial. In the meantime, baseball and the Chalmers Award continued on without him. 
1911, Ty Cobb had the best year yet of his career, winning yet another batting title with an absurd 420 batting average. He also led the league in nearly every major offensive category, including runs, hits, runs batted in, and stolen bases. When the season ended, there was no question about who deserved another Chalmers 30 automobile. The eight sports writers on the panel voted unanimously to give Ty Cobb the award and another new car. Nap Lajouet also played well in that time, hitting 368 in 1912, though he missed significant time with injuries in both seasons. Lajouet was pushing 40 years old, and time was catching up to him. It seemed just a single Chalmers 30 would serve as proof of his accomplishments. But controversy dogged the award. In the spring of 1913, the batting title scandal came roaring back to life in a courtroom in St. Louis. Jack O'Connor's lawsuit against the St. Louis Browns and its owner, Bob Hedges, finally went to trial. O'Connor alleged unfair termination and breach of contract, arguing he'd been guaranteed employment through the 1911 season. Hedges and the Browns argued that they had just cause to fire O'Connor. He'd violated the terms of his contract by disregarding his managerial duties to the ball club. This was a reversal of Hedges' previous claims. When O'Connor was fired, he'd publicly stated that the decision had nothing to do with the Chalmers scandal. Now, in order to prove his argument, they needed to show conclusively that O'Connor had colluded to give Lajoie as many hits as possible. Everyone involved in the controversy, from Browns players to fan observers to Ben Johnson himself, were drawn into the courtroom drama. It wasn't just a small lawsuit about Jack O'Connor's managerial position. The integrity of baseball itself was at stake. So Bob Hedges took the lead, attempting to prove once and for all that O'Connor had cheated. He claimed that O'Connor had explicitly instructed his players to allow Lajoie to get hits at every at-bat. He felt confident that he could persuade the players in question to turn on their manager. But O'Connor vociferously defended himself on the stand. He swore that he'd never told his players to do anything to help Lajoie, nor did he know anything about attempting to sway or bribe the official scorer. O'Connor did concede that he told third baseman John Red Corridan to play far back, but only because Lajoie was known for hitting the ball hard. At first glance, his argument seemed reasonable. Lajoie was one of the strongest hitters in the league. O'Connor added that he also told Corridan to play back for Lajoie's teammate, Joe Jackson. If true, it would suggest that O'Connor hadn't been favoring Lajoie. He just made the wrong call. Seven times. But third baseman Red Corridan directly contradicted his former manager's statements. Corridan claimed that O'Connor told him to play extra far back against Lajoie and only Lajoie. There was no such instruction for Joe Jackson. O'Connor felt his future slipping away as he listened to Corridan spill the beans. He couldn't believe one of his players would betray him so openly. He thought he'd shared a bond with his team and that they all understood what was at stake in the trial. His entire case hinged on convincing the jury that he hadn't given his players orders to help Lajoie. Corridan had just torpedoed his defense. Things only got worse for O'Connor as more witnesses took the stand. Next to testify was Sidney Cook, a local Browns fan. 
Cook claimed that he overheard O'Connor tell both pitchers to walk extra players from his seat behind the Browns' dugout. Walking more players would speed the batting order along and give Lajoie more chances to hit. More at-bats meant a greater boost to Lajoie's average. Cook also stated he heard O'Connor curse at Corridan for attempting to field Lajoie's bunt. O'Connor, fuming, tried to hold back his outrage as his defense crumbled around him. Next, his former employer, Brown's owner Bob Hedges, took the stand. Hedges described the events of October 9th as a sideshow. He testified that American League President Ban Johnson had ordered him to fire O'Connor because he was bad for the game of baseball. It was clear that no one in the case was being completely honest. But even when considering the mixed signals from Ban Johnson, it didn't look good for Jack O'Connor. Because it was a civil case, not a criminal one, the jury only needed to side with whichever side presented the largest amount of persuasive evidence. There was no requirement to prove guilt beyond a shadow of a doubt. In the end, the jury deliberated for less than an hour. When they returned, they announced a shocking verdict. Against all odds, they had sided with O'Connor. The jury determined that O'Connor's conduct on the baseball diamond had not violated his contract. He was owed $5,000 by the St. Louis Browns. O'Connor was elated. He'd beaten his former team and the most powerful man in baseball. He believed his path back into a managerial position in the major leagues was all but guaranteed. He was wrong. Though he was legally in the clear, no one really believed he was innocent. More importantly, no major league owner was willing to attract the wrath of Ban Johnson by hiring O'Connor. He'd won the battle, but lost the war. Desperate for work, O'Connor got a job managing a team in the Federal League, a so-called outlaw league. The teams in O'Connor's new organization had already tried and failed to compete with the American and National Leagues. O'Connor's fall from grace had a long-term impact on his psyche. A few years after the famed lawsuit, he was thrown out of the Federal League for punching an umpire in the face. He would never get another job in baseball again. But he wasn't the only one affected by the resolution of the Chalmers Award scandal. What had been intended as a gimmicky marketing ploy had far-reaching consequences for everyone involved. Next, the Chalmers Award controversy changes baseball forever. Now back to the story. After untold complications, the lingering consequences of the 1910 Chalmers Award scandal seemed to die down after 1913. Jack O'Connor, former manager of the St. Louis Browns, was awarded a judgment after suing for wrongful termination. Ban Johnson, president of the American League, took steps to reform his organization to prevent such a controversy from ever occurring again. Meanwhile, Hugh Chalmers' partnership with baseball had paid off handsomely for him and his automobile company. Sales of Chalmers automobiles jumped from 6,000 a year in 1910 to over 20,000 a year by 1916. Unfortunately, because of economic problems and rumors of bad engineering, the company remained in dire financial straits. After the 1914 season, Chalmers decided his award was no longer helpful as an advertising gimmick. The prize no longer garnered the same front-page news coverage. 
he decided to discontinue the award after less than five years of existence. In 1917, Chalmers was bought out by the rival Maxwell Motors Corporation. Chalmers-branded automobiles were slowly phased out of the company's product line before being discontinued in the early 1920s. At the same time, the American League decided to revive the spirit of the Chalmers Award, this time without Chalmers. Instead, they called it the Most Valuable Player. While the new prize was being instituted, its oldest recipient was flaming out. Nap Lajoie's career slowly faded as the years wore on. Injuries took their toll, and his skills degraded. After a disappointing 1915 season, 41-year-old Nap Lajoie was sold back to the Philadelphia Athletics. He hit a career-low 246 batting average in his final season. The team did poorly. Lajoie played and managed for two more years in the minor leagues for teams in Toronto and Indianapolis. But by the end of 1918, with the Great War looming, Lajoie announced his retirement. On the other side of Lake Erie, Ty Cobb continued to bulldoze his way through baseball. Over his 24-year career in the major leagues, Cobb won 12 batting titles and collected over 4,000 hits, placing him at the top of baseball's all-time leaderboard. Of course, Cobb continued to court controversy all the time. In 1912, he again jumped into a crowd to fight a heckler. In 1926, he stepped down as manager and was accused of fixing a game. He was eventually judged innocent, but the taint of the accusations endured. In 1928, Cobb finished his career in the same place that Lajoie did 10 years earlier. He played his final two seasons for the Philadelphia Athletics before retiring at age 41. In 1936, a quarter century after the Chalmers Award, the Baseball Writers Association of America decided to create the Baseball Hall of Fame. For its inaugural class, no one received more votes than Ty Cobb, not even Babe Ruth. In 1937, Nap Lajoie was also voted in. Both Lajoie and Cobb were in attendance when the Hall of Fame officially opened in Cooperstown, New York in 1939. They were celebrated as two of the best players in the history of baseball, but also as members of an even more exclusive club, winners of the hotly contested Chalmers Award. Nap Lajoie died 20 years later on February 7, 1959, at the age of 83. Ty Cobb died two years later at the age of 74. But even though everyone involved had passed away, the record book lives forever. Statisticians were never fully satisfied. Nearly 20 years after Cobb's death, the debate over the true winner of the 1910 Chalmers Award came sputtering back to life. Pete Palmer, a computer programmer and amateur baseball statistician, was perusing the 1910 stat sheets from the Baseball Hall of Fame's records when he discovered something strange. Ty Cobb's day-by-day -day statistics, as recorded by the American League in 1910, credited Cobb with one more game than he had actually played. His stats from one of his games were mysteriously duplicated. As a result, Cobb was given credit for two more hits than he'd actually earned. Two hits was a tiny amount, but was just enough to tip the scales. Accounting for the error, Cobb's correct batting average that season was actually 
0.383339, almost one full point lower than Nap Lajeway's 384. It seemed as though Nap Lajeway was the rightful winner of the 1910 Chalmers Award after all. The discovery drove other baseball fans and statisticians to go back into the record book and pore over every detail of the 1910 season. Many uncovered new errors and recalculated the averages. In the end, Lajeway still came out ahead. The uproar caused conspiracy theories to spread, just as they had in 1910. Many speculated that Ben Johnson allowed this error to be entered into the record books deliberately. It allowed him to give the Chalmers Award to Ty Cobb without admitting that Nap Lajeway's hits in the final doubleheader were illegitimate. In December 1980, the discoveries were brought to the Special Records Baseball Committee. The panel had been created by the Commissioner of Baseball, Bowie Kuhn, to investigate the record book and correct it if necessary. After some deliberation, Commissioner Kuhn made the decision to follow in Ban Johnson's footsteps. He allowed the existing records to stand. Ty Cobb's 385 batting average would remain with him, as would his batting title. Kuhn's decision sparked a war of words with reporters. The commissioner argued that changing the historical record would be too difficult and impractical. He suggested that the errors baked into Cobb's record were worth maintaining for posterity. The confusion and disagreement over Ty Cobb's actual statistics remain to this day. Ultimately, the real winner of the 1910 Chalmers Award will likely never be conclusively known. The truth has been lost to history. But the changes affected by the controversy are still in effect today. Without the Chalmers scandal, there might not be a Most Valuable Player Award. The controversy may have changed the legacies of both Ty Cobb and Nap Lajeway forever. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Chalmers Award scandal, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Chalmers Race, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajeway, and the controversial 1910 batting title that became a national obsession by Rick Hune, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.